Today on the Morning Glory Project, we bring you sort of a part two to a part one that we aired last time. Last episode, we featured Kevin Briggs and Kevin Berthia, and today it's Kevin Berthia <laughs> all by himself. I'm Betsy Graziani Fassbender, your host for the Morning Glory Project, and my co-producer Angela Washington and I bring you these episodes of stories of determination, people that have made it through difficulties and hardship, past pain and disappointment and failure, having overcome obstacles. Because we believe that when we hear their stories and we hear how people make it through, that that can help you as well. Now, the topic of suicide, it's a tough one. It just is. I'm a survivor of suicide loss in my own family, and I know how painful it is for survivors. And I'm a therapist and have been for 30 years. So I've worked with people who are struggling on the other side of this as well. So I want you to know that whether it is you that has struggled with suicidal feelings, whether you are a suicide loss survivor, or whether you have had these tendencies yourself, please know that there is help available always. That the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. Now I'll bring you my conversation with Kevin Berthia, such an inspiring person whose life didn't get all easy just because he made it through, but he continues to work on behalf of suicide prevention. He has a dream of helping others. I know you'll be inspired by his story. Thanks for listening. Kevin Berthia, thank you so much for being here with me on the Morning Glory Project. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Like I always say, it's a million stories and a million people that you could be interviewing. So I appreciate the opportunity. I'm tremendously grateful for this. Well, tell me what brought you to the bridge that day. You say that you had genetic major depression disorder. Can you tell me about that and what it was like to be you in those first 22 years? It was tough. Um, growing up, I knew early in life I had an issue. Like I knew as early as age five that I was different. Um, I knew my brain. I never knew what exactly what it was. I was too young to understand it, but I knew that I knew my brain would hold on to things. I knew I hated, I hated myself. I hated the idea. I learned early in life that I was adopted and I couldn't understand um, how somebody can give birth to me, look at me and just give me up. So it was something I struggled with early in life, um, trying to figure out who I belong to. Um, you know, when you realize you're adopted, you, you you don't realize you don't look like anybody. And although I was blessed enough to be adopted by an African-American family and uh, belong, you know, that, you know, raised me in an African-American community. So my community saw us as, you know, as a family. But to me, I know I didn't look like my mom. I didn't look like my dad. I didn't look like my sisters. And so when I went out into the world, I used to identify people you know, for who they belong with. Like, you know, sisters look like, you know, sisters and mom look like the dad or whatever, whatever the situation was, people matched. So I was, it was always a trigger for me to have to interact with people knowing, you know, that they belonged or they knew how they belong. And, you know, you grow up as a, as a, you know, as a black, young black boy growing up, I didn't, I'm not saying I didn't, I, I didn't know any other black kid with that was adopted. Hmm. So for me, I felt alone in that aspect because if somebody had an issues in the family, somebody in the family took over the child. That was just how it worked. I mean, I knew several of my friends who were the grandmother was raising them or the aunt or uncle, somebody in that family. So I couldn't understand how not only did my mom look at me and, and, and say I wasn't good enough. How did the family who knew about this child, nobody come forward. So that made me feel even worse about myself. And it made me feel like I was never good enough for anything. So the first 22 years of my life were 
I've made decisions based on not wanting to live. I've never made decisions based on having a future. If you'd ask me, you know, what I wanted to be when I grew up, how do you ask kids? I didn't I didn't even think I was going to become an adult. Um, you know, I, I was heavy in the church. So my, my mom always taught me to pray. So by the time, you know, I got to praying on my own, I was praying to die. Like I was hoping that God heard my, my, my prayer of, of, of wanting to die or wanting to end my life. Like I didn't, I didn't want to, I really didn't just didn't want to be here. And I just didn't know why. Um, I just, I, I struggled each and every day trying to find value and purpose in it in the day. You know, you talk about uh, adoption there's kind of two things. There's the genetics and then there's the, the environment or the early traumas and losses and how you assumed that because your your mother and indeed your entire biological family gave you up in your words that you, you say, you know, I wasn't good enough mm-hmm. <laughs> as if being a newborn, you had to be good enough for something for someone. And yet that was what you internalized. So in addition to whatever, genetics and vulnerabilities you may have had to, to, to be depression prone. You know, we all come into the world with who we're, you know, with whatever our wiring is, right? Yes. Yes. But then in addition to that, you also had this feeling of not being good enough from jump from one. And even though you, it sounds like you had a loving adoptive family. I did. It's like my brain that told me that I wasn't good enough. My, it's like everything, it's like, so I, it's always been a me in my own head telling myself, well, if anybody cared, then they would, you know, and so for years I used to wait, you know, thinking that well, one day maybe my family will come looking for me. I didn't really understand the idea of adoption that, you know, you, you that's it. Like, you know, your family, like you, this is your family. I always had this understanding that, you know, maybe one day my mom will come for me. I mean, that's why to this day I still struggle at 39 with the why, because I still can't understand even at having my own kids how could how could this happen it, it is part of me gets it yeah because I, I got older and you know stuff happens you know but still another part of me still doesn't understand hmm. you know and and i know that that suicide statistics are higher among adoptees yeah and i i've always wondered if it's twofold if if whatever maladies faced their biological families. Like perhaps there was depression in your mother or biological father's family mm-hmm. that you inherited from them. Maybe they struggled with the same thing and thought they couldn't be a parent and had nothing to do, of course, with you um, or, or other adoptees. But in addition to that, you have this, I call it a missing piece, you know, this kind of, you know, this the, the missing why, why and what do I look like and who do I look like? And did I get this from my father's side or my mother's and what's my, what's my cultural background and where were my people? Yeah. It's a yearning, you know, and I think that anybody that's ever been adopted, it's, it's, you can't, you, you can't get away from it. It's, it's, you want to, you want to, you want to, you know, live a, a normal productive life as they say, but you can't get away with the idea of wondering where you come from. It's just, it's just, that's just people that are not adopted wonder where they come from. So imagine people that are, that are, I mean, it's just, that's just how it is. We all have this yearning for who we are, what, where we, where we belong, why are we here? I mean, that's just, that's just how our, you know, makeup is. So in addition to the adoption history, you you had also had, you were a young dad Mm -hmm. at this point. Your daughter wasn't quite one year old when you were, you found yourself on this bridge. Yes. Can you tell me? a little bit about her birth and, and all of that, because many people might say, oh, well, gosh, you were, you were 
um, quote, abandoned by your family. And that made you feel terrible. How could you do that to your daughter? Right. I mean, that, that kind of feeling, but, the, but there was more to it than that. It was absolutely more. Um, I think growing up, I always had this idea that, you know, um, cause you know, you watch TV and you watch baby being born and you watch the baby coming out so, and, and you watch, you know, the nurse take the baby and they kind of clean the baby up and, you know, to hand the baby to the parents and the two parents look with this, this look of completion. Like, I don't know. It was just, I just was always infatuated by that when I was as a kid growing up watching that in the movies and, and to, for, for my situation, I always looked at it like, dang, well, did my mom look at me and like, not like what she looked like, you know? Mm. So for me, it was always different. So I always said, when I have my child, if I ever have a child, I will be waiting for that moment, that moment when the baby comes out, but it's a little different. And psychologically, they don't prepare young parents. You know, they don't psychologically prepare you. Well, nothing can prepare you psychologically for being a parent. No matter your age. <laughs> no matter your age. And when you, but when you're a young parent with a mental illness and your baby is born premature. Oh, so that's another factor. Your daughter was, was born quite vulnerable. She was supposed to be born um, June 23rd. She came April 6th. Mm. Two and a half months early. Exactly. How much did she weigh? Uh, pound, one pound, almost two pounds, somewhere around there. So not even maybe I could fit her in the size of my hand, basically. <sighs> like, you know, so it was psychologically, they didn't have pamphlets or nothing. They didn't walk, sit us down and explain this. So naturally when she came out and they whisper out and I, I didn't have that moment that I already ordained in my head that I was going to have this moment with my daughter. First time I really got a chance to look at her. And another reason why it's like, it was going to be the first person to actually, it was going to be the first thing I actually saw that came into this world that looked like me. Like that was another thing. Mm. That was another aspect. It was like, wow, this is going to be finally something that belonged. And it was my blood. Cause I didn't have, I don't know my blood. I didn't even realize until I'm having this conversation right now, how important like that. She is the first, my first blood, mm. you know, that, that was going to belong to me. You know, because me, my mom, and me, my dad, that was different. But she, but this one was going to belong to me. So psychologically, it was just a lot. Um, watching her go through all what she had to go through, because then you know she had to come out into a glass incubator and have these tubes coming out. It was just I never, I never could wrap myself around the idea that this wasn't my fault because I blame myself for everything. I mean, they never explained that, you know, kids come out early. I just thought it was, you know, the million, one of the million arguments me and her mom was having this, one of these arguments brought her out. Like, you know, maybe she got overwhelmed and, you know, the baby got tired of hearing us arguing. I don't know. I had a million things, but it was all pointing at me of how failure of a failure I was. And it was just, it was hard for me to really get over the fact that she was struggling. She had to go through a hernia surgery. I mean, it was just, how could I have done this to my firstborn? That's all I could think about to myself. My heart breaks a little bit, Kevin, when I hear this, because not, not just because of you, but because I know that this is what happens with depression and what happens when people are suicidal is everything is their fault. Yep. Like you're, if, if you were given up for adoption, it was because somehow when you got born, you, there was something wrong with you. Exactly. And if your child was born premature, even though you weren't the biological, you, you weren't the mother carrying the child, exactly. but somehow it was your you know, fault that, that this happened, that there's something wrong with you that this happened. And if you feel like everything is your failing, everything is your fault, everything is your responsibility, what a huge onus that is yeah. to carry. Absolutely. It's hard. It's hard because I, up until this point, I just needed something to not 
go left. I mean, because everything kept going. And I just saw me as the reason why it was the way it was. You know, my parent, when my parents divorced, that was me. That was my fault. You know, I didn't look at it as adults, um, you know, they, they break up. I looked at it as that was my fault. So I've, everything that ever went wrong in my life, I've always blamed myself. Hmm. I've never, I've never looked at any situation ever, even year to date. Like I've never looked at any situation and been like, no, that person did that. And that, no, that it's sad to be something I did. And that's, that's what it was. It was just understanding that psychologically, I put her in that glass incubator. I'm, I, I put her through this hernia surgery. She came into this world. She was supposed to have everything mapped out for her and just, Watching her struggle for that six weeks, that's where I died. I always tell people, you want to know where Kevin Berthea died? He died in the in the six weeks that his daughter was in the hospital because I couldn't be by her bedside. I didn't have the type of job at the time where I could stay by her bedside. I barely could, you know, they barely wanted me to go, you know, watch the birth of my child. They wanted me at work, you know, because I was a casual at the time working for the post office. And, you know, I wasn't permanent. So, you know, I just, I wasn't under contract at the time. So I couldn't. And I'm guessing you needed to work because you had some bills to pay. I had to work, you know, I had to work. So it was just, you know, not being, so not leaving every day. I remember, you know, I remember walking from every time that I had to walk her, leave her room and go to my car. It was just like parts of me were dying. And I saw them. I felt them. I just had no way of explaining it to anybody. I had no way of talking to about how I really felt. Well, you know, I mean, I think about that since you and I talked sometime, some weeks before about this, I, I was thinking about it and thinking what it was like to be a father, to have the feeling of responsibility that this child was born premature anyway, which by the way, was not your fault, but that you felt was. And then to have to leave her when she was so tiny, you know, a pound and a half or, you know, whatever her tiny little weight was. And to be not sure that she was going to be alive when you came back the next time over and over and over again. Yeah. Psychologically, it's too much because I had to prepare myself every single time. Like, okay, well, what if, you know, and this is all I'm, this is what I'm living for. And you're 22 years old. Let's just remember. And I'm 22 years old. I don't see anything past the moment where I'm in. And it's just like, all I see is... I am in a horrible place. I don't even know who I, I don't even know who I am anymore. I used to have somewhat control over something, but I just, like I'm telling you, I, I, from 22 to about 30, those eight years, I don't even know. I can't tell you who I was. I can't, mm. you know, I, I just can't. So as we shared in the last episode, that's what the, the accumulation of a million things, the, the long yearning and sorrow of adoption trauma the depression that you had, the early premature birth of your daughter, the conflict that you were having with her mother, the bills that were accumulating, the stress of your job, all of that got you to the Golden Gate Bridge. And you attempted to jump off, but somehow clung on and Officer Kevin Briggs was able to negotiate with you and invite you back to this world. And I'm so grateful that he did. That was shared in our last episode, but what I want to share in this one is, so then what? You know, it's not like, ta-da, you're off the bridge, everything is better, everything's perfect now. <laughs> it's not like that. And, and your your daughter turned one year old just weeks after you came back from the bridge. So I went to the San Francisco General that, that day, um, spent 13 and a half days um, in a psychiatric hospital. So this was that was March. So, you know, by the time I got out of the hospital, it was about... I think it was two days before April Fool's Day or a day before April Fool's Day. I remember this. So my mom showed me 
that that picture was front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. The picture of you. The picture the- of me at the bridge. And I'm thinking, April Fools, that's the first thing I thought. Like, this is a joke. This can't be right. And, you know, she said, I'm very honest with you. I need you to know this, you know, that this is out there and it exists. And I immediately shut down. And and here's why. I spent, I spent 22 years of my life making it seem like Nothing was wrong with me. I, I spent 22 years of my life, I spent every moment, every minute, every second, making it look like I had it together, making it look like, uh, you know, I, I wasn't what I felt on the inside. Wait, so let me pause there a second. So between birth and 22, if I was a member of your community or your family, I might not have known that you were suffering. You wouldn't know nothing. I knew early in life how to create a front man. I knew early in life that people never questioned you if you're smiling. Like we look at people nowadays and we see they're smiling. We don't look at them and say, you know what? Maybe you may be sad on the house inside really. No. So I knew early in life to always show people, always be able to say people, say the right words to people, do the right thing. So up until this point, everybody, I was, I was everybody else's counselor and therapist and I was everybody else's problem solver. And I solved people's problems. People used to come to me all the time. My whole life, people have come to me, you know, I, I, I negotiate relationships and, and, and pro, you know, all kind of stuff my whole life. So nobody would ever, I was jovial kid. I was the, 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 the life of the party. I was the person that, you know, you invited to the parties to get the party going. Like I, that's just who I was. Like everybody that ever knew me, knew me to be happy and knew me to be, to be, you know, on top of everything. Like, you know, nobody ever saw this. So in addition to the fact that you weren't talking about what was the pain that you were in, you were also busy building this facade Exactly. And that takes so much energy. That take It takes more energy trying to build than it does to, when, to, for, to destroy everything and show who you really are. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it. But you is, don't know that in the middle of it. You don't know that. You don't know that. You think it's easier to just show this because this is what the world wants to see me as. And this is what this is how I got to identify as. And it just it got worse and worse over the years to where it just, you know, it started at seventh grade. I developed him. And by by 12th grade, I had him mastered, you know, so you couldn't tell me anything, you know moving forward. It's interesting to me that you say I developed him. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, that was a different you. That wasn't you. Oh yeah, definitely. 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 I, I can, I, I know that I know for sure. And, and, you know, when I grew up, I already knew it was something like I created certain things, but I didn't know exactly what I was doing. And then I got older and I got, you know, diagnosed with personality disorder. And so I understood, like, I, like, I know, you know, it's a part of me that that like even to this day, it's a part of me that understands that is critical, that 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 gets the fact that he was adopted. Boom. Hundred percent understand very compassionately things happen. But it's another side of me that hates the idea that can't even really deal with the, the vastness of understanding that what you mean? Nobody came for me. So I've always been handled my life as, you know, literally kind of two people like, I, you know, and then I tried to develop certain habits for these individuals so that nobody ever could identify or nobody would ever question anything about what was going on with me. And I mastered that. You know, I, I have to tell you just, it, it's heartbreaking to me because I know that, that my own brother took his own life uh, when he was 49 and he was a guy with the joke. Yeah. He was everybody's best friend. He was, I'll do anything for you. He was all of that. And I, uh, as I hear you talk, I think how exhausting it must have been for him to maintain that facade. Yeah. And how maybe that's a big part of 
why he finally gave it up? It's hard. It's, it's difficult to create. Because once you have this image of me, I have to maintain. I have to maintain it. Because if I don't, then I don't know who you. If you start seeing me how I see myself. Oh, man. That, and I think that's everybody's one of the biggest fears of people that, you know, have a mental illness and are, live in this dark place. I can't have you see me how I see myself. I can't. I can't. So then you're then you're there you are on the bridge and you're unloading that all all of that story in the hour and a half that you clung on to the underside of that bridge while Kevin Briggs was talking to you you couldn't see him you couldn't hear him I mean you could hear him but you couldn't see him mm-hmm. he was above you your eyes were closed and you were unloading it all yep I gave it all I mean everything that I want to tell my biological dad everything I want to tell my biological mom my adoptive mom my adoptive father coaches therapy you know the couple times that my mom did take me to therapy and I didn't I just sat there for this whole session everything that I wanted to you know just tell the world like I was tired of you know living this lie but I just didn't know I never was in a situation where I felt comfortable enough of, of just saying it and it took this on a ledge 220 feet with nothing you know supporting me with you know I'm four seconds from my death but that's just who I am as, as crazy it may sound I, I am a stubborn person you want the best out of me you got to put me in you know, high pressure situations. That's just who I am. And, you know, and that's just, you know, that's just the reality of it, unfortunately, but fortunately. Hmm. So Kevin, after this time, then you saw this picture on the bridge and all of a sudden the facade's gone, right? Yes. I mean, now the whole world has seen you in your absolute most desperate moment. Absolutely. The facade falls. Yeah. Because I I don't know who, who do I go back to? I mean, I was lucky enough to where, you know, that picture is not a front shot, but people that know me know, know me like they know that's me. And I just didn't I told myself that I wasn't going to. So I didn't go to outpatient. I didn't go to therapy. Uh, I wasn't on any medication. I didn't go to talk to any counselor. I didn't do anything. Once I found out that picture was out there, I told my mom that day, like, I'm not dealing with this day. Uh, I'm not dealing with anything that has to do with this. So I literally went I literally I say I I, I went underneath a rock. You know, I remember contacting um, the mother of my uh, of my daughter and trying to just rekindle a relationship with her um, because I knew that, you know, at least I, I could be around my daughter. I could be around her if I'm going to be here, if I'm going to be alive. And over the next eight years, it was it was terrible. Um, uh, I, you know, probably had no I had about 10 suicide attempts um, over the next eight, eight years. Um, it was terrible. I mean, my my adoptive grandfather died in two, my biological grandfather died same year, 2005. I went to the bridge. Um, that was horrible. Um, because it put my mom, my mom was all over the place. So that was, that was a horrible place for me to be in. And I couldn't really deal with the bridge cause I was dealing with that. Mm. And 2007, my adoptive grandfather, who was the only man who, that I was, I just, it was just two people in the world. I always said I needed my grandfather and my mom. And I lost my grandfather in 2007 that rocked me because it was, you know, that I, I love my grandfather in a place that I couldn't even, I can't even explain. Like, you know, it just, it just completely rocked me. And then custody battle in 2008, custody battle in 2009. And that was the first time I was presented with the picture again from the bridge. Cause I went inside the uh, custody battle and the judge already, you know, um, my ex took the picture of me from the bridge in there. And they are, you know, I had to basically tell them that I wasn't going to harm my kids based on a photo they had of me from the bridge. Like, how do you, 
how do you explain that? And I wasn't even ready to accept it. It's only the second time I seen the photo. Wow. Um, you know, it's just it was constantly something and so many different things. I mean, I went through my own divorce in 2011. That completely rocked because I I always promised promised myself not to ever get divorced because I watched how it affected how much it affected me, how much it how much my life was changed because of my parents' divorce. And so it was just a totally it was a lot of different things, but I never got help. I never sought therapy. So I always know my life is a walking miracle because it just goes beyond the bridge. It's just it wasn't just a bridge. It was the bridge and a million other things after that. And, you know, I think that's true of lots of people. It's it's never one thing. It's a million things. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of that stuff. And it doesn't stop just because you were you know, helped that day. Exactly. But tell me about you today. How do you now get through the hard moments? Because I know that you have begun the Kevin Berthea Foundation. You're in the in the inception of that and and your goal is to help others with suicide. What's what's your dream there and how do you take care of yourself today? What's different now? Uh the dream first and foremost um is to create a, a society where people don't where, where people feel comfortable enough to go to a place and talk, uh, uh, really talk about their feelings and literally can get clinical help, medication, like all the different things in one place and not have to bounce around, bounce through so many different systems. You know, it's just, I've, I've heard so many different stories of so many people who, when we fall through the cracks. So the dream is, is to create buildings, you know, or, you know, around the world that are in the shape of lighthouses and, you know, it, it gives these people the idea that th- this is a safe place to come. This is a safe place where you can come deal with your issues, deal with your feelings, have support here, you know, resources that can help you moving forward, you know, and not just unload how you feel and then go home and deal with it. No, unload how you feel and let's have a preventative plan in place. So after you come out of all these feelings, let, let's let's figure out what we're going to do with this emotion. And um, just, I don't know, it's just, it just, it put it, it's been on my heart for years because I've been able to travel as a speaker and I've saw the need of what we lack in this country and in this world. So I said, well, if it's not there, then I need to create it. So, well, that's, and that's what I'd like to tell you about, because you and I, you and I spoke before this conversation and you told me about that first time you ever spoke in front of a group. Can you share that story with our listeners? Absolutely. Um, first time that I ever got the opportunity to speak um, was May 7th, 2013 at uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention Lifesavers Gala in New York. And it's the first time that I was actually reunited for the first time with my first responders, uh, Sergeant, Sergeant Briggs. And in that room, I spoke openly to about 300, 400 people about everything that took me to the bridge um, that day, March 11, 2005. And it was the first time I ever opened up was with Sergeant Briggs on the bridge. This is the second time that I'm ever speaking about myself and about my feelings and about how I feel. Um, I was vulnerable. I was emotional. All the things that I told myself not to be, I was that day on that stage. And it completely changed my idea of who I am. Because when I came off that stage, I remember um, it was a lady waiting in line for me and she wanted to talk to me. And she was clearly distraught and in tears. And I remember she looked me in her eyes. She told me that, um, you know, she, she hadn't slept in five years. So that crushed me right there. And she said that, um, her son lost his battle. Her son was Jacob. He said, my son, Jacob lost his battle five years ago. And I haven't slept, you know, uh, I haven't slept in five years, but she said tonight, she said, I want you to look at me. She said, tonight I'm going to sleep because I can better understand what Jacob was going through because of you and how you told, because you told your story, mm. because you told your story, Kevin, I can better understand what Jacob was going through. And in that moment, like that's the moment that changed my life. If if I can if I can tell you a moment 
like that that's life changing for me was that moment because I realized, okay, this is so much two things. I'm not alone, which was huge for me because I felt alone my whole life. It was so much bigger than me, like because I couldn't understand how the worst day of my life can give anybody hope, let alone this lady is getting sleep that she hasn't gotten in five years. I just it gave me this sense of purpose. It gave me this sense of understanding about that is so much bigger than me. It's so much bigger than me on that bridge. Like he chose, I was chosen to go to that bridge that day because I still can't, you know, I didn't know nothing about the Golden Gate Bridge. I didn't know it was iconic for suicide attempts. I didn't know, you know, people jumped off of it. I thought I was going to be the first one to do it. Like, so <laughs> when people see, think of, of, of San Francisco, they immediately think of the Golden Gate Bridge. So like I was chosen, you know, since, you know, in, in some kind of way, shape or form, I believe I was chosen to be a representation of, 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 of it, of what was going on, especially when, you know, the same time I'm on the bridge is the same time they're inside negotiating whether or not we should have a barrier up. I mean, it's too many things that there's a certain kind of big magic going on there. <laughs> it is. It's just it doesn't make any it doesn't it doesn't make sense. You can't make sense of it. Like, it's like it can't be made up like you can't fabricate it and put in. It, it is what it is like all these things that happen. Now, Kevin, you left out one of the, maybe it's a lighter moments, the kind of one of my favorite moments about your story of going to New York, which is that you didn't think you were going there to be a speaker. Exactly. Tell a little bit about how you got there. So my mom knew that I wasn't going to deal with, she knew that I wasn't going to deal with that day ever. And so she knew that if she told me that I was going to go to New York to meet Sergeant Briggs, that the man in the photo, that I would never have signed up for it. So she says she wants some radio tickets and I'll, li I'll listen to my mom. If my mom tell me the world's going to end, I'll, she's the only person in the world that I will believe. Okay. Now, wait a minute. Let's slow down here. Your mom told you that she won a pair of tickets to a radio program. Yeah. It was like, I won some radio station tickets or something. And I don't ask any questions. That's just who I am. She was banking on me just being my normal self because I never ask any questions. That's just what I, I don't. I just don't like questions. It's just like I like being asked questions, but I'm not a question asker. So you just took her at her word. And you followed along. That's just how I am. I just, you know, it was a free trip to New York. I didn't ask any questions. So I knew, you know, hey, I've never been to New York. You know, hey, I'm I'm already contemplating suicide at the time. Like I'm new to me. I'm not even going to make it out of 2013. That's what people don't even realize. Like I've already had in my brain like this is my last year. I'm not going to try to get past out of this year. Like, so whatever happened this year happened this year. That's just where my mind was at the beginning of the year. So, you know, she, you know, told me about this trip. So I got on a plane and, and not even knowing exactly when I got out there, I didn't find out why I was there until I got there. Um, until I got into the hotel room and the radio station had, you know, uh, left me a message and the hotel room told me, gave me the number and I called the radio station back and they said that, Oh yeah, we were excited. They were excited to hear from me. Like, I didn't even know they knew my name. They said Kevin Bird did. And they was excited. And it kind of shocked me because I didn't know, you know, I'm like, how do you know? You who I your am? mom just won some Exactly. Tickets. So I'm thinking, you know, this is about tickets. And I'm about to tell them like, ah, my mom's not here. It's just me. They said, oh, we're excited to talk to you about, you know, your first your uh, your your eight year reunion with your first responder. And I'm like, eight year reunion with first responder. Let me can I call you right back? I just got in my room. <laughs> now, let me call you. So I call my mom. She said, mom, why am I here? She said, oh, you're going to meet the man in the photo. Just like that. It wasn't, oh, I'm sorry. No, it was, oh, you're going to meet the man in the photo. She knew that I was there. What can I do now? I have to, like, she knows I'm not going to just be like, oh, no, that it, she knows me. She knows me. Well, I was just going to say, that is a mother who knew her son. She knew me. She knew that you wouldn't ask her anything. She knew that you needed to do this. She knew that once you were committed to do it, you would do it. Yeah. That's a good mom. Yeah. She knows. She knows me. She knows me. She knows. She knows if I got out there, I was not going to turn around no matter what. And I was going to have to face it. And that's exactly what happened. I was forced to face the reality that it, that was me in the bridge. And it took me until I was 
right before I was about to go up to speak, I looked at a photo. I finally looked at the photo of me on the bridge because it was in this big old jumbo train that everybody was looking at. And I finally looked at it and I accepted that it was me about five minutes before I got up there and speak. So I know I would never have been able to speak openly about anything that day if I didn't accept it was that it was me in that picture. Hmm. Accepting that it was me completely changed my life. And then you get to meet Kevin Briggs. Yeah. What was it like for you to first lay eyes on him? It was, it was, I thought it was going to be awkward and it wasn't, you know, I mean, you figure like somebody saved your life. You don't know if you're going to, they're going to want you to bow at them, kiss their feet. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how people are, but he was, it was like old, two old high school buddies that haven't seen each other in 20 years. Like we were at our high school reunion 20 years later, like, and we spent every day in high school together. And all of a sudden we just didn't talk for 20 years. When really what you had spent was an hour and a half. Exactly. Not seeing each other's faces. Exactly. But sharing this intense life-changing, life-saving moment together. Yeah. It, that's a really intimate experience, I imagine, that that bonds you like as if you had spent all of your days of high school together. Oh, no, that's forever. That's 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 forever. It's a love there that I will never be able to explain. I, I will never be able to explain. So, Kevin, I want to, we have just a moment or two left here, and I want to ask you, how do you, what what do you employ now to get you through the rough spots because you are who you are. You have the wiring you have. You have the long history of suicidal feelings. How do you get through now? It's tough. Uh, I, I try to take it one day at a time. I, I have learned that how you go to bed and how you wake up are the two single most important things that you can do in life. I mean, because, you know, I used to go to bed with, with all these stuff on my brain and then I wake up with it and then I got to take on the new challenges of the new day with everything that I'm all the old challenges that I'm facing. So I'm always overwhelmed. I had to give myself an understanding that each day presents a new fresh start and that I have to have enough in me to deal with the current day. So um, and it's tough. It's not easy. I still struggle to this, you know, to this day. I mean, ever since the pandemic hit, I'm like everybody else, you know, it's been a struggle. It's been hard because everything I've gotten used to doing, I can't do. So I have to have find different things that alter and I have to change things and this and that. And I'm a person like doing the same thing every day, but that doesn't always work all the time. You have to change things because different days. Monday presents an, a, a different issue that Tuesday is going to present. So you got to always be prepared. When you say that you, you wake up differently, is there a ritual that you go through to sort of? Yeah. At night before I go to bed, I tell myself everything that I that I couldn't get done today, everything that I wanted to get to, that I didn't do. It, it, it is what it is. And then I could do about it because I can't wake up tomorrow wondering about what I didn't get done. So I always try to at night before I go to bed, uh, allow myself to be OK with whatever didn't get done throughout the day. I allow myself to be OK with wherever I'm at in life, wherever I'm at in life right now in this moment, I got to be OK with that. So when I wake up in the morning that I'm OK with that place that I'm in. Like, you know, if I go to bed upset with how my life is, I'm gonna wake up upset with how my life is. That's just the reality of it. Like it doesn't change overnight unless we change it for ourselves mentally. We have to p prepare our brain with better thoughts. Like, you know, I've flooded my brain with so many negative thoughts that I have to deposit more positivity inside of me. So you have to deposit big loads of you know positivity inside you to combat with the negative things that you think about yourself. Mm. Well, it strikes me that so much of your depression and so much of what was going on was the story that you were telling yourself about yourself. Yep. And by the way, the story wasn't accurate. Yeah. That's the other thing too. Nope. Kevin Berthia, I'm honored to have you with me here on this 
on the Morning Glory Project. And so, so very happy that you're here to share this. I know that your struggles are not over, but that you are a stronger man today and that uh, what you do to share your story with others is inspiring. I hope that anyone listening today who feels as though they're overwhelmed and can't manage can listen to just a morsel of what you have, what you've learned, and find the help that they need, find a place that they can be heard, find a place that they can tell their story, and find a way to tell themselves a different story about themselves. Thank you so very much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Absolutely. I appreciate you so much. Oh, Kevin Berthea, <laughs> what a miracle he is. Flawed and broken and vulnerable and ongoingly troubled sometimes, like so many of us are, but a miracle nonetheless. So many things to learn from his conversation with me, and, and I am really struck by one piece of it that I want to tag on to here as an extra bloom, and that is how he said that he created a front man. That he was in depression and agony for a very long time, but that no one in his family would probably have known. Although it sounds like his mom knew a little bit because she did try to get him some help here and there. But that he was busy building a facade. He was the smiling guy. He was the laughing guy. He was the guy that everybody else came to for counsel. And inside, he was in agony. Makes me think of that Smokey Robinson song, Tears of a Clown. You know, everyone thinks I'm the life of the party just because I tell a joke or two. That was Kevin. And how exhausting it was to keep that facade built and maintained. So as an extra bloom and as somebody who is a survivor of suicide of people that I love, it's about looking past the facades of the people that we love. It's about looking past the smile, asking, oh, what's really going on? Are you really okay? I'm here. I hear you. I see you. I love you. I care about you. If you or anyone you love is struggling with suicidal feelings, please know that there is help available. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. I'm going to say it again. 800-273-8255. If you don't have someone in your immediate life that you can reach out to, there's somebody there that can help. I hope that you and those you love can find ways to hear each other and to make room for each other and to look past the facades that we put up for one another. Let the light in. It'll help you bloom. <laughs>